Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willie's Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of Music Mecca Muscle Shoals. We're taping this episode, a creative workshop recording studio in Nashville, and today's guest is my good friend and mentor, the legendary Buzz Kaysen. Buzz Kaysen is a music entrepreneur, songwriter, Americana artist, session singer, publisher, and recording studio owner. He was a member of Nashville's first rock and roll band, The Casuals, and has been leaving his fingerprints all over the Nashville music scene ever since. He was honored by the Country Music Hall of Fame as one of their poets and prophets, and is a member of the Rock and Roll Rockabilly Hall of Fame. Buzz was the first person who employed me here in Nashville, and I'm still working for him. It's been a thrill. And he has been such a great mentor, inspiration, and friend. It is my honor and my pleasure to welcome Buzz Kaysen as my very first guest in the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Oh, it's great to be here. Welcome. How are you doing? Oh, we're guests in man. your house anyway here at Creative Workshop. Yeah, so. we're here in the friendly forest confines and got Natalie at the controls in there. And uh, we're ready to go. Yeah. Maybe we can start in the presence because I know how much you you're a man living in in the now and with the with the eyes set on the future rather than dwelling in the past too much but over the last 10 years or so you've you've released a string of Americana albums and your latest one Passion came out earlier this year and maybe you can uh, just talk about a little bit about about Passion and about this this latest album of yours Yes, it, it um, was released, I believe, in March of this year, 2017, and uh, received uh, real nice reviews and everything. Um, the charts weren't real nice to us, but we actually got about as high up as we get into the 50s or something like that in the Americana, you know, fighting all the big labels and, and the, the, the major artists and everything. But um, it was just a collection of songs. Um, and uh, my son Parker Kaysen worked with me on several of them, and Joe Funderburk was at the board on on the majority of them. And then I went down to uh, Alabama, to Loxley, Alabama, with uh, Anthony Crawford, and recorded uh, a couple of sides down there, uh, notably uh, a song that Billy Swan and I wrote, 
and uh, called Just Is Gone, and it received some country airplay. It's kind of a novelty record, but um, I used mainly musicians. I used mainly um, uh, Colin Winery, Brian Grassmeyer, and Jim Thistle, uh, the the crux of uh, of our band called the Love Notes on the this, the tracks. And then when Parker was producing, we used some of his friends uh, on those. So it was it was a fun collection of songs. Yeah, and uh, I know you're always working on new music too. Just a couple of weeks ago, you were in the studio doing another session. But also at the moment, you're uh, there's one of these rare occasions where you allow yourself to look back a little bit. Tell me a little bit about about the Barry Hill documentary you've been working on. Yes, we're working on a um, a documentary, an archival piece uh, on this area that we're located in here in uh, South Nashville um, called Berry Hill. And um, the fact that um, uh, Bobby Russell and I, my original publishing partner, guy that wrote Honey and Little Green Apples and The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, we moved over here in um, about 1969 and um, we were the first commercial uh, building, first commercial business uh, in here. And um, then Bobby decided to move to California, so I came around the corner here on Azalea Place and uh, decided to build Creative Workshop um, in 1970. And I had Travis Turk as engineer, and um, Jimmy Buffett was our first artist, and we were actually recording Jimmy in this room before it was even finished. There weren't any floors and the walls weren't finished or anything. And uh, but we started recording as quick as we couldn't couldn't wait. We started making records as soon as we could. Um, and then the uh, the area became popular. Uh, people caught on to it. What was going on out here and started moving in. Jack D. Johnson moved across the street um, on Azalea Place here and put in his management group, which had Charlie Pride, Ronnie Millsap, T.G. Shepard, Johnny Rodriguez, uh, Sylvia. It went on and on, the, the amount of artists he had. And his uh, his office kind of became our happy hour place. Every afternoon we'd gather over there just about. And um, then, then the studios started coming in, Treasure Island, um, two doors down from us. And uh, not long after that, uh, Randy Scruggs put his place in on up Isaiah Place. And um, the, the, now there's uh, 40 studios in a one-square-mile area here in Berry Hill. So it, it's it's unique into the world uh, what's going on here. And so I wanted to document it and, and get get the history down. The The history of Berry Hill itself is pretty fascinating of the little city. Uh, it was voted on in 1950 to become a a city on its own, and it passed by the city council by three votes, <laughs> and um, it it became kind of a it kind of had some speakeasies and it was kind of had a, a kind of a wild little reputation there for a few years, and then the um, uh, military came in uh, around World War II and uh, made homes for uh, Air Force uh, families in here and um, it they they built these little cracker box houses which is what we're in now uh little two-bedroom homes and of course everybody's built onto them and expanded them but it's a pretty fascinating story 
we're trying to keep it as interesting as possible, and we've had interviews with Travis Turk, the original engineer, and then Brent Mayer, who came in when the place really exploded and became popular in the mid-'70s. Uh, we got him uh, interviewed in, uh, uh, all the way up to Joe Funderburk and, and Parker, and um, we had uh, a, a very special interview with Jimmy Buffett from down on the coast, uh, which is uh, kind of our ace in the hole for the documentary to really put it over the top, I believe, to make it really fascinating. Yeah, and you mentioned that in, in the 70s, this studio was a very hot place, and among other people, uh, the Doobie Brothers and The Faces and Roy Orbison, Merle Haggard, uh, a little bit later, uh, Leon Russell and Elvis, very briefly recorded here. Um, but then you also started a second studio uh, right next door. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, in the 80s, um, I had purchased a house from John Richburg, who was the, the voice John R. on the radio on WLAC 1510 AM, the big R&B station. And um, John had a record uh, company. He first had Soundstage 7, then he had Sound 70 was his label next door. And um, but he decided to get out of the business, and um, he sold me the property. And uh, in the early '80s, decided to put another room in over there, Creative Two, and uh, we built that. And um, like to never got it finished, ran out of money a couple of times, but um, it proved to be successful. And Brent Mayer was was engineer over there, and and then in the '80s he discovered um, the Judds, and uh, he uh, and another a group of investors decided to uh, buy the place from me, so I I sold them uh, Creative Two, and it it became just Creative Recording, I think. But anyway, they um, uh, they managed it for several years, and then John McBride purchased it from from that group. Um, I think John's been over there uh, more than ten years. I think ten, maybe twelve years or something. And uh, he added on about seven different rooms. It's a it's an eight studio complex now called Blackbird, and so it's 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 highly successful. Everybody and their brother records over there. Yeah. So, but going back a little bit to your uh, career in music, and I like to quote uh, Alamo Jones here, who's been calling you the father of Nashville rock, and. Uh, would you mind sharing a little bit how you got your your start in this crazy music business? Well, there was a television show here uh, called Saturday Showcase, which was uh, presented by Noel Ball, who was a very popular disc jockey here on WSIX, and um, he he had he had three hours on Saturday afternoon. It was before ABC Sports. It was the ABC affiliate. It was actually Channel Eight at that time, and. Um, he, he needed talent bad, so I was an art student. I really wanted to be in art. I, I wanted to be in graphic art or commercial art or something like that, and I'd been four years in art school, and I was a junior at the time, and Jim Seymour, a friend of mine who had uh, theatrical desires, he, he said, hey, we're going to do a production number out at Noel Ball Studio Saturday uh, why don't you come join us? I said, what is it? He said, well, we're going to pantomime White Christmas by Bing Crosby. 
And I said, what's that? He said, well, you lip sync. You sing to the record. You know, you just had to do a little slight choreography. And I said, oh, no, that, that's not for me, man. He said, there'll be a lot of girls. And I said, I'll do it. <laughs> which is the appeal of most guys in, in high school getting into bands. and uh, <clears throat> But anyway, so we went out there, and when I saw those lights in that little studio, it, was, it wasn't even as big as this uh, tracking room here. Uh, <clears throat> I was fascinated by it and, and just uh, got to know the cameraman and different people. And, and um, it wound up, Jim and I wound up painting sets using our little artistic abilities. We painted some sets on great big sheets of paper for the backdrops and Noel paid us a little for that and we thought man we're in show business you know <laughs> and uh, I remember one day we had all the paints and had our books because we came straight from school out to paint this place on a Friday afternoon before the Saturday show and um, we were coming back down the hill and he, he just was not a good driver Jim wasn't he had a 41 Plymouth his parents had bought for him and painted that thing robin egg blue. Boy, it was pretty on the outside, and it ran pretty good, but we came down Granny White Pike, and there was a little curve down there. Every time I go past it, I think about it, and he he got to swerving, and I said, Jim, she's going to go over. Hold on. And sure enough, he rolled that thing, and books and paint and everything came down on top of us, and he, he, he wasn't a very serious guy. He was just breaking out laughing. I said, man, you're going to be in trouble. We some way or another got the thing turned over and turned back over, and uh, he drove it around with the top caved in for the longest. But anyway, it got me into the, to, to the show business, so to speak, because I met my um, band members, uh, Johnny McCrary, Richard Williams, Billy Smith, and Chester Power, who, by the way, Chester Power turned 80 years old today. He's the oldest casual, and I just spoke with him, and we reminisced quite a bit. Uh, but uh, Chester played, he played accordion. He played piano real well, but you, you know, in those days, you didn't have electric pianos, you know. Um, and so if you went to an auditorium that didn't have a piano, we'd use the accordion. And we would use the left hand, we would kick the bass up on it, on the amp, and that would be our bass, would be the, the left hand of the accordion. But uh, it was a, a little magical combo. We, we would go out and entertain for the, um, on behalf of the television show, which would get us a crowd because uh, Noah would hype it on the TV show and we would go to these high schools all around the outlying areas around Nashville. And... Uh, one time we were going up, but I was still lip-syncing records. I wasn't in the band yet. Um, and so I, I, I kept asking the manager, said, hey, man, let me sing. He said, I'm never going to get anywhere singing other people's records. He said, well, can you sing? I said, sure. And so finally his wife kept bugging him. I've always said that I owe my career to Betty Pinkleton, who kept bugging Jerry. His, his show name was Jerry King. He was a real character. And uh, he said, okay, uh, Betty's been after me. He said, leave them damn records at home next week. We're playing up Lebanon, Tennessee, March 16th, 1956. We're playing up Lebanon next week. Just tell, tell Richard, the band leader, that you left your records and ask him if you could sing one. So I did. And Richard said, sure, what do you know? I said, blue suede shoes and C. <laughs> I don't know whether anybody does blue suede shoes and C, but that happened to be a key that I knew. And... Uh, I did, and it went over. And the, the interesting thing about Lebanon, Tennessee, was that's where my dad's people were from. And um, I can't remember if he was there or not, but I know his sisters were there and my cousins. And uh, 
So I had a had an audience, you know, and uh, it went over. And so Richard said, do you want to do some more of this? I said, sure, yeah. So I wormed my way into the band, and I said, we need to call this band something. So I came up with the casuals, and, and we... Um, uh, we got an opening shot with Jerry Lee Lewis down in Tullahoma, Tennessee. And um, they hired us on the spot to open for Jerry. They said, can you guys be in Phoenix? I always joke on my shows that uh, if you people want to join me, we're heading for Phoenix tonight. Well, this was really the way it happened. He said, go home, don't pack, just get a, get a, a sack of brown bag with your underwear in it and socks and some extra shirts and we'll, we're going and we took off for phoenix that night and we started opening shows for jerry lee lewis well uh, the name started getting around and uh brenda lee's manager got wind of us from oscar davis oscar davis had been affiliated with hank williams and with different uh famous entertainers over the years and he was trying attempting to manage jerry lee lewis and he, he really liked me. He said, kid, you got it. He, he loved to hear me sing, and he, he was really encouraging to me, one of the first people that really encouraged me. And um, he, he said, I'm going to talk to Dub Albritton about you guys. And Dub Albritton was the famous manager of Brenda Lee. So they got us an audition with Brenda. We drove up to Rockford, Illinois, no, no rehearsal, no nothing, and rehearsed that afternoon and played our first show with her. And uh, we got the job of backing her. So from then on, uh, things really started happening for the casuals. We started traveling with her a, a majority of the time. Yeah, and you you so, also started so writing some songs, including my love song for you, which was a 45 for the casuals that you wrote with Richard Williams. That's right, yeah. Oh, uh, Noel uh, told us, he said, if you guys get some songs together, Noel Ball was a really unique character. He was kind of the Dick Clark of our, our area. And he had uh, entrepreneurial uh, dreams and and uh, production skills, and he had a powerful radio voice. He could have worked anywhere in the country and probably worked on network, but he really was fascinated with the record business, and he was friends with Randy Wood, Dot Records. Who Randy was originally from Gallatin, Tennessee, and uh, he, he said, if you guys cut a record, you know, we might be able to get Randy to pick it up, but... Uh, so we went, we moonlighted in WSX radio studios one night after his radio show. And we had to have one guy watching the door to make sure that if, if Louis Drone came in, the guy that owned the station for some reason came by late at night, we'd, we'd have to fake it and go hide or something. I don't know. But anyway, we were, Richard had come out to my house and had an old upright piano, and we wrote my love song for you and a song called Somebody Help Me. And they were the two sides we recorded up there that night. And, um, you know, no overdubs, just, just mono. Uh, I don't even think we had a bass on the record. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, we, we, yeah, that's right, we did. We had Wayne Pilkerton. But um, uh, we, we put it out on a label called New Sound Records. Now, if you can find one of them, you've got a real collector's item. I don't know whether it's worth anything or not, but it's, it's quite a collector's item. And I even designed the the cover for it, the 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 label for for the record, and it was uh, with another guy um, was partners in that little label with Noel Buzz Phillips, I think was his name, and um, 
we we didn't do anything. It didn't do much, but some way or another, he convinced Randy to pick it up because it was a local hit, and you know it sounded like a hit to, to Noel because all the requests were coming in for it because we were popular and everything, and uh, so he picked it up for Dot Records. It, it it didn't do anything after it got on Dot, but it did allow us to do a we did a follow up kind of a record called Hello Love, uh, and those were the two forty five singles we had. Um, as the casuals. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned Bobby Russell before, and around the same time you established a songwriting partnership with him that uh, led to a couple Jan and Dean cuts. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Yes, when, when we were in town, um, I would uh, uh, start experimenting with my songwriting, and uh, I wound up down at, uh, it was Revis recording. It was above uh, what is now Tootsie's. It was Mom's, Mom's Tavern back then. And there was a little studio up above that. Nobody knows about it hardly. It was a egg crate studio, had egg crates for acoustics <laughs> on the wall. And um, I went down there one time. I took Johnny McCrary, who I always give credit to being the first rockabilly guitar player and rock and roll guitar player here in town. Um, who later became the owner of WMTS uh, Radio in Murfreesboro, did quite well. and um, uh, But we, we put down Heartbreak Hotel and uh, uh, Blue Suede Shoes on, on a, just on a vinyl, just an acetate, you know, just, just a half. And um, in, in the process, I met Bobby Russell down there. I'd never, never met him, and... Um, I thought he was kind of an arrogant kind of a guy because, see, he was from the, the good side of the tracks. He was from Hillsborough High School, and I was from Isaac Litton out in Englewood, and uh, we were intense football rivalries and everything. Uh, but uh, we, he, he, said, he asked me, he said, do you write? And I said, sure, I write. I'd written one half of one song, so I figured that qualified. <laughs> and and uh, so he said, do you want to try writing? And said, come out to my house. We went out to his house on Sperry Road out in Green Hills, uh, section of Nashville, and um, where they say write about what you know about. So we we wrote a song called Tennessee, and we both liked Jan and Dean. Uh, that was in the pa 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 those days, you know, baby talk and all that. So uh, we wrote this pa 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 song, and uh, Gary Walker was affiliated with the studio. Um, kind of jumping ahead, by the time we put the song down. Gary Walker and Kenny Marlowe had purchased this studio. And um, they were both uh, Vanderbilt students, and uh, Gary had written some country hits. And um, so they kind of knew their way around the business, and Gary was just a great hustler. He's still uh, still kicking. He has the, the Great Escape uh, stores here in town, him and Peggy, his wife. And he, he somehow or another got this song to, uh, he either got it to snuff Gary to Lou Adler, Lou Adler, they were both kind of producing Jan and Dean on this early these these records back then, and they covered. We 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 had put out Tennessee under the name of the Todds, which was named after Paul Coyne's uh, son. Paul Coyne was the uh, head of Decca up up until Owen Bradley took over, and he had a son named Todd, so he named named his label Todd, and he called our uh, made up group the Todds. <laughs> So, of course, the record came out and didn't do anything. So, it, it was it, technically Tennessee was a cover. Um, but Jan and Dean, it got into charts. And we thought, man, this is easy. We never have to get a job. We, we can write songs for a living. So, it uh, didn't quite work out like that. But anyway, um, 
that was the the beginning of mine and Bobby Russell's partnership. And uh, then we wrote Popsicle. Uh, back in the early days, I was a Popsicle pusher in the neighborhood, pushing a little cart. And I thought, man, that's a cute story. We, we may make something out of that. So we, um, and that record came out um, later on in, in, in the 60s, uh, maybe 63 or something. I'm not sure what year Popsicle was. You may know. I don't know. Uh, and it was quite a hit. I mean, it went top 20, and um, uh, I was able to thank Jan Berry in person when I moved to California and was working for Liberty Records because it was on Liberty Records. Those, Both of those, Tennessee and Popsicle, were both on Liberty. Yeah, and around the same time you got to uh, together with Tony Moon to write what is one of your signature songs now uh, called Soldier of Love, and it was... Uh, we're not 100% sure there, but we believe the first recording was done in Muscle Shows done by singer-songwriter Grady Smith under the name Grady Lloyd on the Smash label. And the song was titled Lay Down Your Arms then on the 45 before uh, Arthur Alexander recorded it as Soldier of Love. Would you mind sharing a little bit about the origins of that song and maybe also about the interesting afterlife it's had ever since? Yeah, well, I don't know whether it may be a kind of a conflict of that story because the way I remember it was Noel Ball asked Tony Moon and I to write a song for Arthur Alexander. And um, we wrote that, and within just a few days he recorded it. Now, uh, Gary Walker could have gone on and pitched it to to Grady, um, about the same time or something, because back then you didn't you didn't have what you call holes on songs. You know, you record it and you take a chance on maybe you can get it out before the next guy. You know, uh, there wasn't any such thing as holes, which I, I didn't never did believe in anyway. Um, but uh, uh, Tony Moon and I sat down in a little one room apartment he had in Belle Mead, and we claim a soldier of love to be the only R and B song ever written in Belle Mead, Tennessee, which is kind of the Beverly Hills area of Nashville. And um we uh we got it to to Noel and they recorded that uh, song in Studio B with a kind of eighteen people and um a tremendous record by Arthur. It didn't it didn't do much in the charts. It was split between the B-side was called Where Have You Been, written by Barry Mann, and um, it, it kind of got a little more airplay than, than Soldier did. But um, uh, it, it, it's it been a fascinating song. I don't know whether you want to go into the, the history of that yes, song. Yes, please. Or what. Um, it, uh, uh, not long after that, um, well, it, it laid around for a while, but little did we know that the Beatles were performing it in England. Uh, and in 62, they had actually recorded a, um, a version of it on the live at the BBC radio show there in London. And um, we, didn't, we, didn't, we never heard about it. In fact, we did not get wind of it, Tony and I, until 1980. It was kicking around on bootleg tapes. The kids had taped those, those BBC shows and we're circulating them among each other. And um, uh, finally, Capitol Records bought those, that, those, all those series of shows and put it out under the name of uh, Live at the BBC by the Beatles. So we had us a Beatle cut with John Lennon singing lead on it. I remember when Tony Moon 
played it for me next door. We had, and, and we were in the new studio then. And uh, he said, listen to this. And he played a little bit of Arthur Alexander. And I thought, well, that's just Arthur singing our song. And he said, yeah, but listen to this. And then he put the Beatles on. I said, that can't be who that who who I think it is. He said, it sure as hell is. <laughs> and it was, uh, it floored me. But, um, and the sad part of it was, that was the year that John Lennon was assassinated. But, uh, and then about, long, about that time, uh, Marshall Crenshaw did a cover of it. It was on his, uh, what, I don't know whether you know the title of the album or not, but it was on the, his Warner Brothers album. And, um, and then uh, uh, in, in the 80s, Gloria Estefan did a tremendous version. Uh, oh, wait a minute, I, I've got, I got my songs mixed up. <laughs> I got my songs mixed up. Pearl Jam did a, a version of it also. And um, and then later on, the derailers here in this studio uh, used it as a title cut for their album that we produced. Yeah. And so it's, it's got, got a lot of mileage of it. And recent, most recently, our good friend, uh, Alabama-leaning man Donnie Fritz just did a version of it with uh, John Paul... John Paul White. John Paul White as producer, so we're anxious to hear that. Yeah, um, we we talked a little bit about Bobby Russell, and there's been significant collaborators all th all through your career. Besides writing a lot of songs on your own, but Matt Gaden is somebody else you've collaborated with a lot. Would you mind sharing a little bit how the two of you met, and then maybe we can kind of see into the origins of Everlasting Love. Yes, um, back in the fifties uh, uh, and the sixties, there was a a few record shops around, and one was Ernie's Record Mart down on Third Avenue, and um, I was down. It, Noel would give me Noel Ball would give me a, a, a slip of paper say give Buzz three or four records or whatever, so I could go down there and just pick out which records I wanted to lip sync on the show. And get them free from from Jimmy Lancaster, a great little old guy that ran the store. And I was down there one day, and Matt Gaden was there, and he was uh, he was working part time there, and uh, we 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 talked about the blues and and, uh, and everything. And there was a a disc jockey named Happy Jack up in the window, Morgan Babb, great guy. Uh, wake up and give, get up and live. When you're snoozing, you're losing. <laughs> so let's get moving. That was Happy Jack's. Uh, saying, but anyway, um, Mac and I talked about, you know, I don't know whether we discussed writing that day or not, but um, we stayed in touch, and um, later on he, he said, um, you know, I've got a friend that uh, uh, Robert Peebles goes under the name of Robert Knight, and actually Noel had recorded him uh, in a group called the Paramounts, a stand-up group, and I think had maybe done a, a single on him also. Uh, but Mac had heard him sing one night up at a fraternity uh, in Sewanee. Up in Sewanee, Tennessee, used to be one of the wildest party towns that we would play on the fraternity circuit. And uh, he he heard this voice down. They were taking a break at their fraternity house, and he heard a voice singing down the the way. And he said, "Man, what a sound! What a great sound!" And he he claims it. He said, "One of these days, I'm gonna write you a number one song." And uh, so he came to me, and by, by this time, Bobby Russell and I had formed 
Rising Suns Records with Fred Foster, the president of Monument Records, and um, we're planning on putting out some records. And Fred gave us a budget to to record Robert. Um, and so we were preparing for the session. We had three songs we really liked. We had one called The Weeper, which we thought was really our kicking number one song. It was kind of a Marvin Gaye sounding thing. And we needed one more because in those days you cut four songs on a three-hour session. That way you'd have two singles, an A, a, a and B side. And uh, so we uh, we were kicking around songs out in West West Nashville, out on Rodney Drive, out where I lived. And uh, Mac had these two melodies, and I said, any way you could put them together, man, they're they're cool, you know. Uh, and make we can make one song out of them. He said, yeah, but. I got to go. The wife's got dinner waiting, and uh, I said, "Well, let's put it on this." We had had a wall and sack tape recorder. I've still got it up there in my office, and we we put it down on there. And, and I said, "I'll put some kind of a lyric to it." And I kind of ran out of time, and that's why the song doesn't have a second verse. It's just ooze, you know. So, but but we put it. We stuck it on the end of the session, um, and it's called "Everlasting Love," and. Uh, it became a big hit for Robert, and it was also, a side note, it was Brent Mayer's first master session as an engineer, and it was uh, recorded at the Fred Foster Studios, which had originally been Sam Phillips recording in the old days up on 7th Avenue. A lot of the music business was up on 7th Avenue in those days. Um, so um, we were on our way with Robert, and... Um, Everlasting Love was on its way, and then in 1974, the more definitive version was recorded here in this studio with Carl Carlton, with Papa Don Schroeder producing, and I got to sing on that too. I had uh, had sung on Robert's record, Backgrounds, with Carol Montgomery, and uh, sang with Wendy Suits and uh, a couple of other girls on, on this uh, Carl Carlton version here. and. Uh, of course, the song has been recorded multiple times. Uh, later on, I was mentioning Gloria Estefan. She did it in the 80s, and um, and then uh, U2 did a version of it in 2000 as a, as a B-side. So it's been it's been around. Yeah, and you just mentioned that you sang on some of these recordings too, and for a while at least. You you sang on a lot of other people's records, including uh, Kenny Rogers, Elvis, Jimmy Buffett, and Levon Helm. Um, can you tell us a little bit how you got into singing on sessions and how kind of maybe some of your collaborators do? Because I know that Bergen White has been a very important collaborator for you over the years. Yes, um, the um, the background thing came about mainly because of um, of Hugh Jarrett, who was the bass singer, original bass singer, well, original from the standpoint of the early Elvis records. He was the bass singer. And um, he had been um, let out of the group. Since this is an intimate setting, I can tell the truth about what what I heard, what happened to him and the Jordanaires. He's rest his soul. He's passed away. He was a on the side was a disc jockey up at WHIN and Gallatin, and he would book the casuals up there. But what had happened was um, he he had polio as a child and couldn't dance like the rest of them, and they had to kind of move around on those t- those movies with uh, Elvis. And 
he claims that's the reason they let him go, but then the inside story is they let him go because he was chasing too many women. <laughs> but anyway, he was a character. He had a 55 Thunderbird that was to die for. And um, he uh, knew me and Richard from uh, booking the casuals. He would book. We were booking those days these National Guard armories, which was the awfulest sounding rooms you could ever play in just a big cavern, you know. But um, they'd have sock hops. They would have these, what, that's what they call the hops, where the people would dance. They'd get out there in their sock feet and dance and do the bop, you know. But uh, <clears throat> so he said, hey, I've got this idea since he had left the Jordan Airs. In those days, the only background singers, we're talking about the end, like 59 and 60. Uh, that, in that area, there was only the Jordan Airs and the Anita Kerr singers. He said, there's room for another group. To, to fill in the blanks when people can't get either one of those groups. Because in those days, uh, Nashville was running four sessions a day at, at the two main studios, RCA and, and, and Columbia. And, um, well, it wasn't Columbia then, it was Bradley's barn, Bradley's um, Studio B. And uh, so he said there's room for more background singers. So he got myself and Richard Williams and Mary John Wilkin, the Hall of Fame songwriter, um, and uh, himself, and we started rehearsing and learning how to do parts together. And Mary John taught me and Richard a whole lot about harmony. She was a tremendously talented person, and she wrote Long Black Veil and Waterloo and many, many songs, uh, one day at a time. Anyway, uh, we started doing a few sessions. We did an early Waylon Jennings session. Uh, I've tried to trace down what songs they were. They weren't hits. But they were early, early RCA uh, songs that we sang on. <clears throat> and we sang behind Homer and Jethro, <laughs> comedy act. And I, I can't remember too many of the folks that we sang for, but we kind of got known as, um, as background singers. And then I moved to California for a short while. When I came back, I resumed my background singing career. And... Um, there just weren't that many singers around is, is what the answer to your question is how I got started because I wasn't all that good but I just was, was available you know so uh, uh, we we started working for you know just on call for different people and we being me myself and, and Bergen White branched off and started doing things together we had a producer in town Kelso Hurston who was doing a, a lot of commercials and um he liked my lead singing. I did a lot of lead vocals for him. Uh, and and then uh, we did a lot of backgrounds. We did uh, RC Cola, McDonald's, uh, Coca-Cola, uh, Kraft Cheese, major accounts. Uh, we did jingles for and That's when I joined after him in, in 1959. And, um, you know, to this day I receive, you know, benefits from that because you you piled up uh, points, you know, in, in your uh, your four hundred one k, whatever you call it, in the 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 retirement fund in AFTRA, and um, but the, it was it was real lucrative. I could I was telling my wife the other day, uh, my sons are 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 getting married, and and I, I said I've told them both. I said the way I put you guys through school was I put all of my royalties off my songs which weren't a whole lot then but 
it was kind of like gravy just receiving a little extra money royalties. I put them all in savings, and that's how I built up your college fund. And I lived off my sessions and whatever little gigs I could get. So anyway, that's a side note, <laughs> worthless trivia. But um, yeah, that's that's the way the background. And then uh, what was really good to me was uh, Larry Butler was a tremendous musician, great piano player, played on a lot of Billy Sherrill sessions, uh, uh, songwriter. Um, uh, he he used Bergen and I on 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 majority of his sessions, and we we started doing the Kenny Rogers sessions from Lucille on, and um, uh, we did Sammy Davis Jr., Paul Anka, Tom Jones. Uh, well, Tom he didn't produce Tom, but uh, we did uh, uh, we did. Uh, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of her name. But the woman in the Sound of Music, Julie Julie Andrews. We even did a session with her. <laughs> Because I remember her hearing her curse, and it was funny to hear her swear on, you know, she's so clean cut and everything. But um, we did a lot of uh, sessions, and then we did work for Jerry Kennedy a lot. We we did the uh, Mel McDaniel session. We did Baby's Got Her Blue Jeans On, which is a real big country song, and Stand Up, which was written by Bruce Chanel. Bruce Chanel, that's right. And. Uh, <laughs> Gosh, man, it was it was busy times. It was fun running from one studio to the other, and and, and at the same time, from 1970 on, keeping this place going. So I was busy. It was fun. Yeah, and even predating that, you uh, became a chipmunk. How did that come about? Well, that came about by the time in 1960, I had had a a branch off of the the, the that group that Hugh Jarrett formed was. We called it the Statues, and he managed to get us on Liberty Records because being friends with Al Bennett, the president of Liberty, Al was also from Gallatin, from that group up there. And he uh, he sent Snuff Garrett in to produce us. We thought, Snuff Garrett, that sounds like an old guy like Snuffy Gabby Hayes or somebody, but turned out to be a guy almost our age, just a couple of years older. And... Uh, he took a liking to us, and we put out a version of Blue Velvet, which hit the bottom of the charts. We, we copped the, uh, covered the, the Clovers version of it. And um, then they decided to do a solo record with me called Look for a Star. And they, they not only covered the song, the record, but they covered the name. Instead of Gary Mills, which was the original artist, they called me Gary Miles, which is something you couldn't get away with nowadays. But anyway... Uh, during that time, Snuff Garrett came through town, and there was a speakeasy club. We were playing the Black Poodle in the in the Printer's Alley, which is kind of in kind of a revival right now. Uh, and we would go down. Jimmy uh, Wash Cannon was the head gambler down there and kind of owned the place. And he said, you guys come down and have a steak with me after the show. And we'd say, well, Jimmy, we got no money to gamble. He said, don't worry about that. Come on down. So we went down one night, and there was Al and Snuff shooting craps in a, at the table. And, and I, I noticed Snuff there, and I stood up and said, hey, man. He he never looked up. He said, hey, Buzzer, how you doing? I said, doing good. He said, and in a second, he said, how would you like to come to California and uh, work for me? I said, oh, I always wanted to move to California, but I don't know stuff. I got a job you know, with the band. He said, well, you'd have to quit that. And I said, well, I, I don't know. I said, you serious? He said, yeah. I said, I teach you the production ropes, and uh, you come out there and live in Hollywood with us. And I thought, man, that sounds pretty good. And he, I said, when do I have to let you know? He said, in the morning. <laughs> 
and, and knowing him, I knew that's what he meant. And so I went home, woke my wife up and said, we're moving to California. So when I got out there, I met uh, Ross Bagdasarian, who happened to be David Seville, and had already had the Chipmunk song, the Christmas record, and it also had uh, uh, The Witch Doctor, which was a, a big hit, and uh, just a tremendous guy, an uh, Armenian guy. He, I, I really liked him because he had so many different sports cars. He'd drive a different car up every, every day, and he wasn't braggadocious about it. He had come up from nothing, and he was uh, just really the king of Liberty Records because of all his success. But he said the Beatles came in about that time in 64, and um, he, he said, uh, let's do a Beatles album. So we did Chipmunks meet the Beatles, and that was our first Chipmunk session. We recorded at RCA, went in at 6 o'clock that night, and got out about 6 o'clock in the morning with the with the record done. And um, it, it was quite an experience. And then we, uh, when I moved back to town later on, Larry Butler, whom I was talking about, um, recorded Urban Chipmunk, and he used Bergen White and Dennis uh, Wilson and myself. And... Um, and then they called us to go out and do the TV show, the the television show you see every Christmas. Uh, that's our voices on there, and we we recorded that out there. And they wanted us to stay and do the regular TV show, but we couldn't couldn't do that. But um, it, it was fun working with the with uh, as a chipmunk. I was Alvin, so I had the most fun. <laughs> After starting to produce uh, out in L.A., you also resumed production work over here. You produced several different artists over the years, including, you mentioned the derailers. You did Anthony Crawford. You did Sugar Cane Chain. Obviously, all of your, your solo albums, too. And uh, in 1977, you released your first full LP as an artist on uh, Dick James Music's label and which which uh, kind of started your, your career as a solo artist under your own name. Uh, can you tell me a little bit how that opportunity came along? Yes, uh, there was a guy that worked for uh, Dick James Music and the, <clears throat> the label was called DJM and um, Arthur Braun was a um, Real enthusiastic, uh, aggressive young song plugger, and for for their catalog, and also represent the label. And he, I'd played him some demos. He said, "Man, you ought to make a record." I said, "Oh, I don't know. I, I'm more on the business end." He said, "Well, let's do it." So we decided to do it, and um, uh, we um, uh, at the time Robbie Robertson, not the Robbie Robertson with the band, but another. Robbie went to New York to present to them a. We had put together quite a, a good a, a traveling band, um, and in those days, tour support was the key to everything. And you know, you had to have two, tour support to go out and play these small clubs that couldn't afford to pay, pay you. And um, we presented our program to Stephen James, who was Dick James' son, kind of a pompous ass. <laughs> tell you the truth. <laughs> Uh, and he he just rejected us. No, no, we can't we can't do that. And so man, we were shot down. So it killed the the record really because we couldn't travel, we couldn't promote it. 
and I, I'm pretty proud of the record. My son Parker keeps wanting to remaster it. I think it's owned by Universal now, I believe. Yeah. Um, but uh, it did kind of start me on a solo career. I didn't do a whole lot uh, after that. Um, but uh, until, you know, the 2000s, to, you know, very seriously, I did a, a, a couple of just independent records on little little labels of my own for the fun of it. But um, the Americana thing came along, and uh, I got signed by uh, Paladuro Records by Chris Thomas. Out of He's, he's out of uh, Chattanooga now. He was out of Texas, and uh, I met him through... Uh, through the derailers, through a Texas band that I was producing, and um, we put out Hats Off to Hank, which was really kind of a bunch of demos to start out with, and uh, it was almost the same identical thing. He said, you, you ought to do a record. I said, well, I, you know, I've not um, done anything like that, and so we we started that, and we did that, and Busload of Love with, with Paladero, and then the rest have been on... Uh, on arena gone been on our own label yeah and you also got to write a book that came out in 2012 i believe yes the the revised version the original book was uh, uh living the rock and roll dream the adventures of buzz case and it was on published by hal leonard in 2004 and um a hardcover book and and did did pretty well and then i bought the rights back in um 2012 and we retitled it Everlasting Love, and I added a chapter or two to it. And it's it's been fun. I, you know, it gives me something to for merch to carry out and sell, and um, it's available on Amazon and all that kind of stuff. So um, it, it's, I'm glad to kind of get it out of my system because I tell you how that came about. I Every time I'd start telling stories, everybody would say, man, you ought to write a book. And I, you know, I thought, yeah, sure. And... Um, then one night we were doing a Buddy Holly tribute down at the Exit Inn, and uh, Bill Lloyd was there, and I got to tell you, we got to talking about Holly and about me being in the Crickets and, and singing it with them in 1964, and uh, he said, "Man, you ought to write a book." I said, "You know, Bill," I said, "I'm going to let that. You're going to push me over the edge. I think I'm going to tackle it. You know, since you said that, and so I worked on it for about three years, and." Um, uh, it it was fun. Aaron Brown, my longtime buddy from third grade, got me hooked up with Keith Mardak of uh, Hal Leonard, and we sent. We had tried to get an agent for the book. We hadn't pitched it to any publishers. We couldn't. We couldn't even get an agent. And had one guy out of Texas that was real enthusiastic about it, but his partner wasn't. So uh, then one day, uh, Wanda Pojar was my secretary. She said, "Got a guy on the line that." says uh, he's interested in the book. And, and I said, what was it from? He said, well, you sent that book to Hal Leonard, you know, and I'd forgotten about it. And so they uh, they were very nice, and their production on the book was nice. And we had Brenda Young, um, my editor out of New York. I uh, had to visit with her a couple of times in New York. and It was just a fun process, you know, just really, really great. And did a book tour and a whole nine yards and really enjoyed it. I remember I went to to Harvard bookstore in Boston, and I I thought, man, this is going to be stuffy. And, and sure enough, the guy introducing me had a tweed sport coat and a bow tie, and he gave this articulate introduction, went into the history of Southern music and everything. And I was floored. I said, I got up when he I said, man, that 
your introduction is better than my book. He said, you know what I really liked about your book? I said, what? He said, the pictures. <laughs> so I, I knew we had hit a winner with, we had about 50 pictures in the book. So, And another thing that's been close to your heart is actually something you started with a fellow songwriter, Dickie Lee, is giving in faith together or short gift, which is a, as a charity organization that helps musicians and music minded music related people in need would you mind telling us a little bit about how that came about and then also about the ray stevens uh charity golf classic yes and if if i have the website right it's giftnashville.org it is right? giftnashville.org if you'd like to know more about it it's it's kind of a mini version of music cares which is a um a charity of of uh, naris uh, but we, we didn't start out like that. We just started out to be like a, a Bible study here at the studio and just a few people. And then one time Johnny Christopher, the great songwriter, uh, said, man, he said, I believe if we'd have some speaker, guest speakers, we could draw some people. So we started doing that, and we got up to 40 or 50 people, which we still have. And um, But the Lord has put many in our path to, to help. It, we'll just be rocking along and we're not helping anybody, and all of a sudden something will come up, just a tremendous need, and we're able to dig into our, our pockets and, and come up with money to help them. And uh, the thing about it is nothing is, uh, is charged to gift. Every penny that comes in goes out. And so it's, it's really been good, and we have an annual picnic. This last June we had Charlie McCoy play for us. He did some gospel songs and did some of his hits, and... Uh, told a lot of stories and we had sugarcane jane last year who who have a tremendous story and a tremendous musical background and uh, we we do fun things to, to raise and we have a, a golf tournament coming up the ray stevens classic coming up october uh, uh, 13th 12th and 13th and um, a third of the the proceeds will go to gift and that's been a tremendous help to us because we're helping an ALS patient and uh, part of the uh, charity uh, recipients from the tournament goes to Augie's Quest, which is an ALS uh, research uh, benefit. And um, it, it's, it's really been, it, it really warms your heart to be able to, to step in and maybe ease someone's misery for a short while or, or whatever you can do, you know. So it, it's really been a uh, got tremendous folks supporting us and uh, just a uh, great fellowship to have here. We have a first Tuesday meeting here at the studio every month. So that brings the folks together and we have a potluck lunch and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, let's finish things up here. Thank you so much for being my guest, my first guest uh, on my on my podcast. And uh, I look so much forward to... Uh, continue to work with you here in the future and uh, you know have a successful golf tournament in the fall and if you want to learn more about Buzz it's buzzcason.com or about GIFT as you said before it's giftnashville.org Yes well thank you Andres it's been a real honor to be your first guest and I wish you all the best with your podcast and uh, folks this guy is uh, not only special to me and helpful to me and a good friend, but he's uh, helpful to many others and uh, in the business and is a friend to Muscle Shoals and uh, to all the musicians down there. 
and just does a tremendous job. And uh, he and his wife, Rachel, are great folks, and it's great to be associated with them and wish you all the best. Thank you. Same to you. This was the first episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Special thanks to Creative Workshop Recording Studio for hosting us and Joe Funderburg for his technical assistance. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. Oh, 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 oh